Hi, this is Chris Garcia calling. Hi. Hi. See if I can get it. Ah, thanks, thanks so much for talking to me. This is... Yeah, there we go. Ah, great. Hi, Chris. Howdy, howdy. Ah, okay, let me yeah. make sure I wear a hearing aid, so I have the, uh, I have to get it from the iPhone into the hearing aid, but I'm there now. Oh, excellent. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, my brother-in-law has the same problem when we call him. He has to go through his hearing aid, and it's not always easy. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's really a pleasure to get to chat. Yeah, sorry for the delay, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely present at the moment and in a better place. <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, great. Well, I just have about, oh, probably... 15, maybe 20 minutes of stuff that I'll break into probably five or six episodes. Uh, okay. Probably starting tomorrow. They tend to be really short, so... And then we do a compilation episode at the end, which is usually like a week later. Okay. Sounds good. Great. Okay. Well, let's start at uh, probably the point I have to ask because it's required, I think. Uh, can you tell us sort of the origin story of Ant Farm? Okay, well, uh, I graduated from uh, architecture school, Tulane University, in 1968. And, uh, you know, nobody in my class, uh, we were all uh, facing either the draft or some way of avoiding the draft. Uh, nobody wanted really to go into work for a corporate architecture firm because of the counterculture and other influences of the 60s. And... I had met uh, Doug Michaels when he came to Tulane and lectured uh, the year before I graduated, and we'd stayed in touch. And so uh, we met out in, of course, San Francisco. Uh, I came out here to attend the Halpern workshop. Uh, Barry Halpern, the landscape architect, and his wife, Anna Halpern, the dancer. And um, we decided to found an alternative architecture practice and we described it to a friend as underground architecture because of course at that point in time you had underground newspapers underground radio underground films in san francisco so we were underground architects and she said oh like the ant farm the toy i had as a kid so immediately we had a perfect name metaphorical name and logo and official color because ant farms only came in green back then <laughs> oh that's great necessity is the mother of pretty much everything <laughs> <laughs> right yeah you can say that uh excellent okay um uh, and now i wanted to ask about really one of the pieces that i can remember hearing about when i was a kid was house of the century yeah well um Initially, of course, as an alternative architecture practice, we didn't have any clients walking through the door. And we had to invent our own projects, and we did a series of experiments with uh, inflatable structures, which were cheap and symbolically opposite of what we'd learned in college, which would be brutalism, modernist brutalism. Mm -hmm. But um, in 1969, uh, in Houston, we uh, 
Doug and I were teaching at the University of Houston, and we took a slideshow of our uh, collage work to the Contemporary Arts Museum uh, to try and show it to a curator, you know, just walking to the front door. Uh, the curator was not around, but this woman who was a volunteer said, oh, I'd like to see your slideshow. So that was uh, Marilyn Oshman. That's how we met. And uh, that was the beginning of a friendship, which eventually turned into the house of the century. Uh, and that was about, let's see, that was 1969. So it was three years later when uh, she kind of said conditionally, yes, you know, let's do this project uh, to build a vacation house at a property the family had outside of Houston. Hmm. Uh, excellent. And when was the last time you actually saw it? Uh, I think it was in, let's see, I was going to say 2011. Uh, I, I organized a trip there with a friend who I had met who teaches in the preservation, architectural preservation program at Columbia University, Jorge Otero Palos. Hmm. And, um, uh, we, we went there, um, and, and Marilyn sort of funded the, this trip and just to have a discussion about the possibility of restoring it, uh, because it was damaged, um, it was damaged in a flood, uh, which I think occurred maybe in 2000 or 2001. And at the time they didn't do any restoration after the flood damaged, uh, the physical structure, including the floor which was a kind of sculpted, sculpted floor. Uh, so we spent, we spent um, three, three days there and uh, came up with, you know, sort of a series of options or a framework for how she might uh, approach restoring it. But ultimately, nothing has been done since then. So uh, it's in very poor physical condition. It's not really habitable. Uh, but the, the concrete shell itself is uh, still complete. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the thing. I mean, if you live long enough as an architect, you will see your, <laughs> your creative work uh, either disappear by, by virtue of development or uh, be destroyed by some form of nature, I think. Yeah, that's... That's very much true of every architect in the Bay Area, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it will be, of course, more true than ever going forward with climate change because it's going to wreck so many uh, habitations in the coming years. Oh, definitely! Wow, I was just I was just reading a book about that by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson that really blew my mind about how the premise of the book is that sea level rise will be fifty feet which is exactly enough to cover the first two floors of the MoMA, which made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, which title was that? That's a New York 2140. It just came out earlier okay. this year. It's really good. Okay. I'm going to get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me ask about uh, Cadillac Ranch, because this is the first piece of y'all's I ever saw in person and had no idea about anything surrounding it and yet it had a profound effect on me as 
the idea of someone growing Cadillacs. <laughs> right. Uh, that's nice to hear that. Well, uh, you know, the piece, uh, in some ways, I think of it as being uh, about the experience of growing up in post-war America. I was born in 1944, and uh, so in 1959, I was 15 years old. And I, I was a car nut as a kid, and, you know, was waited, you know, in the fall to see what all the new models would look like, especially in the mid-50s. At the same time, in that period of time, uh, Cadillac advertised itself as the standard of the world. And in 1959, they ran a print ad that showed the evolution of the tail fin beginning in 1948, when the first sort of the tail just grew a little bump off of the rear fender. And leading up to the 1959, which of course was the, the largest tail fin model in the uh, U.S. automotive industry. And um, it turned out that uh, Doug Michaels and Hudson Marquez, who were uh, two of the other partners in Anfarm, had very similar experiences. And um, so we were aware that Cadillac was a, uh, a social symbol. You know, it was, a, it was advertised and it was, in fact, a symbol of having arrived at a particular, you know, accomplishment or position in life. Uh, and so it was, it was an idea that we were just, in a sense, playing around with in our studio. And um, Curtis Schreier made rubber stamps out of this, this 1959 Cadillac uh, print ad. And what they had done in that ad was cut off the front of the car. So the photograph showed uh, a series of photos of, of the models leading up to 1959. So. In some ways, you can say, once we were given the opportunity, which uh, was an invited commission by uh, a rich uh, Amarillo businessman, uh, it was a simple matter to translate that diagram into three dimensions. Uh, you know, at the same time, we, we had also lived through the Vietnam War as students, you know, under the threat of the draft and... Uh, and to me, the, the lesson of Vietnam was that the, the, the country with the most sophisticated military technology in the world had lost the war to guerrillas who were fighting out of the jungle in Vietnam. So, you know, it was easy by that point in the early 70s to see that the automobile was a prime source of smog and pollution and traffic congestion and you know and during that same period of time i mean the automobile during the 20th century shaped the american uh, infrastructure so there, there there is both a critique and a kind of love of that era built into cadillac ranch um and um you know it was a fairly simple process once once we made a proposal and got the, the go-ahead from Stanley Marsh. Uh, in fact, I think the budget for the 10 cars was, to buy the 10 cars was $3,000. Wow. And we brought it in under budget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done. 
Uh, so, so, you know, that was, and that's in part because it was really only, it was 1974, so it was 10 years after, you know, the, the newest uh, model was a 1964 Cadillac, so it was only 10 years old, and uh, a very dry climate in uh, the Texas Panhandle, and uh, the cars didn't have the cachet of Sunset Boulevard and L.A., and so they weren't uh, expensive. Um, and it was fairly simple to put them in the ground uh, because the ground was so hard you had to use a, a backhoe, a, a mechanical machine to dig it. If you could, if each hole was the same depth and width, all you had to do was push the cars in, and mm. they would line up. Oh wow! So, uh, so that just took uh, five days, and uh, then we had a opening reception, a party. Uh, it was June 21st, 1974, and we've had a party every 10 years since then, um, but not in 2014 because uh, Stanley Marsh died that year. Oh. And uh, so it's, it's another project that has kind of haunted me the, my whole <laughs> creative life, you know, <laughs> to, the, to the present. I know how I know how those projects can go. I've had a few of them myself. <laughs> um, yeah, but well, what year were you there? I was there probably seventy-seven. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was I was very young. It was the first time I, and it's yeah. one of my like very early memories. I remember because my my dad used to wrestle, so uh, we were in Amarillo, you know, every. Every six to eight months. Oh. Yeah, so at that point, 77, uh, you know, we, the only precaution we took when we installed it was to, to weld the hubcaps on because we thought people might steal the hubcaps. <laughs> and uh, it took actually years before any spray paint showed up. People initially... Uh, of course, of Texas, so it got shot at, and people kicked in the windows. But uh, the original paint was still intact, pretty much uh, by, by 1984. But people had been scratching into the paint, their initials and things and messages, uh, and then it, and then it kind of uh, grew from there. But it was it was always intended to be a public sculpture, even though it was privately commissioned and it's on private land mm -hmm. and and uh the first couple of years it was possible to pull off the road and and you know drive right out to it but then we told stanley that's that's not right you've got to put up a fence you've got to make it a pedestrian activity people should park and walk out to it mm -hmm. and um i think that's important to in terms of how how you see it you know you walk out that about 200 yards and you, you approach it and there's something that's very, it changes from being automobiles to being these stationary objects. Uh, and it's kind of mysterious, but it's, at the same time, it's a, it's a simple evolutionary diagram. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and I know one of the things that really amazed me about it when I sort of was looking back at this, because I was, I was less than five at the time. And it's uh, one, of, one of those things that, you know, there's this idea of roadside America. Because I remember driving up to it. I don't remember walking to it. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And 
this idea of this sort of roadside American art that is, you know, we tend to associate it with the ball of twine, but then you have something that's actually making a statement, and that's really sort of rare, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I think, you know, it's been, it's, it's just into that kind of um, outsider art in a way, but of course we were educated and trained and knew about conceptual art and in some ways it's a ready-made, mm -hmm. uh, I think, because the power of it comes from, let's say, the design of the original automobiles mm -hmm. and then the juxtaposition that they've been put into at this angle sticking out of the ground. And uh, obviously it resonates with a lot of people because uh, there's a constant stream of people stopping and visiting it. Uh, last time I was there was in, uh, let's see, uh, two years ago. And um, I did shoot some video at that time and, and to just follow somebody out there Somebody that, no, actually three people, they arrived with no spray cans, but once they were at Cadillac Ranch, you know, what do you do? You, you, you have this opportunity to interact with it. So they began picking up spray cans, <laughs> checking to see if there was anything left, and then they would, you know, add a discrete or, you know, an, I, an idea to something that already has so, has so many layers of paint mm -hmm. that the paint, now it, it can be chipped off and it's about, three quarters of an inch thick in some places. Wow. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. When you look back on, on that, the sort of that, that interaction level, were you sort of thinking of that at the time or was that something that just surprised you? It surprised us because we weren't, we weren't thinking of that at, at all. Um, we did have the opportunity. I mean, one of the key decisions was where should we put it? And the Marsh family, they had a, a map of their property, which was a checkerboard, and it turned out that each, each alternate square was a square mile. So there were, there were locations that were really off the, off the road. You know, you'd have to go away from even the cow road. But um, it seemed to, you know, one thing we were aware of was that this used to be Route 66, and that was the appropriate place to put it, you know, so, uh, next to the highway, mm -hmm. next to the old, you know, America's highway. Yeah. Uh, I, I just got in the mail a couple of days ago a book uh, from a guy in the Czech Republic, and several years ago he had contacted me, and he was bringing a group of Czech, uh, you know, car nuts and motorcycle guys to travel Route 66, <laughs> and he was going to do a publication of it, and he wanted permission to photograph Cadillac Ranch. So it turns out he sent me a new book, which is about Route 66 and the Czech Republic, and now they have a tradition of driving that Route 66 with American cars every year. Oh, wow. So, so it has all these kind of strange, you know, cultural translations. Um, and when we were there uh, two years ago, we did some uh, video shooting in uh, Tucumcari, New Mexico, which is one of the towns that, that, that has uh, a few motels that have been restored. And we stopped at um, 
trying to remember the name of the motel, but we stopped at this one motel where they have fantastic neon, and the owner came out and he said, yeah, you know, in the summer, it's, it's hot as hell here, but in the evening, there's nothing to do in Tucumcari, so the people who are visiting will sit in these old uh, metal chairs that we have outside each of the motel rooms, and, you know, into the evening, and you'll, you'll hear all these different languages spoken, because they're they're doing the same thing. They're driving Route 66. Wow. Oh, that's a that's a great thing to be a part of. <laughs> yeah. 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 So let me ask you sort of a uh, question. As one of the real pioneers of video art, uh, what sort of uh, preservation efforts are being taken with your works? Well, uh, you know, the works that were, the best known works that were done with Ansar, Media Burn, um, and then the Eternal Frame, which is the reenactment of the Kennedy assassination, they both have been uh, restored and digitized, uh, media burn by the Museum of Modern Arts in their collection. And um, I'm, I'm currently doing some restoration on other works from the 1980s uh, that are, you know, not as well known, but uh, just to have to try and get, you know, my whole output uh, onto digital formats. So it's, you know, it's um, because it's a reproducible medium, uh, it's in a number of collections, uh, those early works and other works of mine. So it's, that's a form of restoration. In other words, they'll be, they'll be protected and migrated um, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, for example, they, in their conservation department, they have a media specialist, and uh, they routinely migrate uh, video works into contemporary formats. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, it's kind of an advantage of the video medium that it is, it has that possibility. And once we get into the digital, um, you know, there's no, there's no generational loss one generation to the next. So, uh, you know, what I love though is that I, I worked with video. We first got got our first uh, porter pack in uh, 1971, and the, the recorder itself weighed about I think 24 pounds. So it was really hard to shoot smoothly if you had the recorder over your shoulder. But throughout my lifetime now, um, the camera on my iPhone is a high-definition camera, and I've, I, I've recently made a piece uh, that I shot in New York using the iPhone. And, uh, you know, so the technology has kind of worked to the advantage as I've gotten older that I can, you know, <laughs> I can be a better cameraman by virtue of a smaller, smaller uh, camera to work with without giving up any technical uh, aesthetic quality. Yeah, that's, that's certainly something that is, uh, now that people are starting to shoot feature films on their iPhones, one of the things that people are realizing is that there was something to the weight of a camera. So there are now these right. rigs where you insert your iPhone into <laughs> that sort of give you exactly. the... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that physical sensation. Well, yeah, and of course... Anybody can write a novel if, who can buy a pencil, but uh, not everybody has the, <laughs> the ability to, 
to be an author creatively. That's very true. <laughs> um, now, I want to talk about another piece that I adore that I've been wanting to see again for years, and that's Easy Living. Yes. And so what was sort of the, the gener genesis of that project, and uh, what was sort of your view moving through it? Well, um, Ant Farm ended in 1978, and I, I had to try and figure out what, what to do. And uh, I thought that teaching might offer a co similar collaborative environment. In some ways it did, in some ways it didn't. But um, I was sort of committed to the collaborative practice. And I had a friend, um, Mickey McGowan, who is a huge collector of uh, toys and ephemeral things, all things sort of Americana, particularly from the 50s, 40s, 60s. He's also a huge record collector, which has um, managed to support his <laughs> uh, retirement. But uh, so we uh, did this collaboration, and it turned out uh, to be a, a portrait of the places we grew up. So again, it was another reference to childhood or really more our sort of teen years. And what was interesting, I was in Florida during those years and he was in Southern California, but there were, there were more similarities and differences. So it's a, it's a kind of a, uh, archetypical portrait of an American suburbia of that era, uh, using, of course, model cars, dollhouses, and other toys uh, uh, to populate it. And um, I think uh, by having much of a theoretical discussion, we arrived at uh, the idea that there was a tension between uh, trying to make it as realistic as possible, given the constraints of, you know, the objects we were using, how to get them to animate. Um, and ultimately, that that becomes a really interesting uh, tension, I think. It was, so things happen in easy living, but there's no real storyline. There aren't. If there are characters, they are basically the cars that seem to be zooming around and going to the drive-in and stopping at the beach and uh, things like that. So it's it's. Uh, let's see. It was originally 18 minutes. It's. Uh, I think it's, there's a trim version out there as well. And, uh, but we could shoot on video so we could, you know, we had the camera, the live feed of the camera that would help us to construct the scene. And it's all done one scene at a time being built, not on a tabletop, actually on the floor of his, of Mickey's studio. Uh, we would build it, we would dress the set, and then we shoot the scene and we could modify it for different um, angles and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it does, it does follow the conventions of cinema, you know, the establishing shot, going to the close-up, uh, and so forth, conventions of editing. And um, I spent years, you know, teaching in that area, first at uh, UC San Diego and then at UC Santa Cruz in, in the film department, the art department of San Diego and the film film and digital media department at Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know one of my dream uh, film programming ideas that I've always wanted to do is to open with the life and death of 9413, a Hollywood extra, 
then show Easy Living, and then show uh, Superstar, uh, the Karen Carpenter story. Because oh, of, yeah. Yeah, all, all three of those, because I think I probably first watched them all about the same time in the 90s, and was just blown away by the through line of this uh, miniature representation of recognizable aspects of the world, of, of not only suburbia, but also this sort of suburban ideal that we all believe is out there. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. We, yeah. We did, Mickey and I did another collaboration a little bit later in uh, 1990 called Picture Windows. And that was uh, uh, a construction, a sculpture that was built to look like a dollhouse, but it was six feet tall. And three of the windows have, had video screens in them. And so it was... Uh, we used Venetian blinds to open and close each scene in each window. It was a kind of voyeuristic experience. You were looking in these windows and seeing what was going on inside the house. And, um, you know, so it was a similar kind of project. But um, with the, the final scene, we, we used a, a clip from uh, uh, Hitchcock's rear window, uh, you know, to reference that. <laughs> sort of process of looking and and the imagination, how the imagination informs okay. uh, that voyeurism of, of looking in a neighbor's window. Oh yeah, oh that's great. <laughs> uh, that's what I'll have to, uh, is, that a, is that just a video or is that actually a physical piece? It, yeah, it's a, it's a physical sculpture and um, it's in a collection in Germany now. So I, I only have documentation of it, and mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that the, the video documentation is uh, on my Vimeo site. Oh. Oh, but I can, um, I can, you know, refer you to probably a place to find it. Oh wow! Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I'm, now I have to go to Germany to see that and Mud Muse when it returns, <laughs> and so many other things that are there that yeah. in this art world that I've fallen into again. <laughs> Um, so let me ask Great. you actually about a video that, uh, actually in a couple of videos that are, uh, I know they're available on the Chip Lord Selected Works through Electronics Art, which I think is oh, where yeah. I saw them years ago. But a Celebrity Author is the one that really sticks to me. But they all sort of have this sort of idea of uh, using a recognizable form to discuss aspects of our society and I sort of wanted to see you know where these came from what was their sort of genesis yeah well you know it it goes back to uh spending 10 years in the collaboration with Ant Farm and when it ended in 1978 uh and it was like a being in a band and the band breaks up you know Mm. uh I had to search for a new identity because I had been identified my identity had been the band, you know, Ant Farm. And um, so a number of those pieces are about, you could say, about identity. There's the executive air traveler, you know, which is a sort of performance, performing the role of, of a business traveler. Sometimes I would just drive out to the airport and shoot photos. Sometimes I would be traveling. Um, uh, and then, uh, let's see, what's, what else is on there? Uh, well, the celebrity author was just a sort of a improvised idea on the talk show, you know. 
was just using the talk show as a complete fantasy. And uh, Willie Walker, who at that time was uh, also a video artist, but kind of a performer, you know, uh, performance artist as well, uh, played the host, and I come on as the celebrity author. and so eventually these pieces all were all put together as part of selected works, all short works made in that, that period of time between 1978, I think, and 1981 um, or 82. And, you know, that's uh, actually, that reminds me, I should, that should be online because those pieces are so short, they fit the contemporary idea of video, you know, video has to be short to be, I guess it doesn't have to be short to be streamed anymore, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's, this accessibility comes with the, the shorter work rather than the longer work. Mm-hmm. And that's the nice thing about uh, Vimeo and YouTube and all of that is giving new life to a lot of these shorter works that really had nowhere to go in the 90s. Uh, that's and right. That makes me... Yeah. You know, I'm a short film programmer, so I, I love that that's okay, a possibility great. now. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I want to talk about sort of your uh, your more recent stuff. And so where is sort of your energies going now? Well, I've done several pieces that are related to climate change. And what's, what's kind of interesting is that uh, very early in Ansar in 1970, uh, we did... Uh, two pieces about smog and dirty air in the Bay Area. One was at Berkeley on the first Earth Day using an inflatable uh, as what we call a clean air pod. And another piece uh, was done in Los Angeles as part of a conference of experiments in art and technology uh, called Gas Station, where we actually uh, lit a highway flare, to, to, as a, put it in a cake as a candle, in a room, put on our own own gas masks, and started projecting images of gas stations on the wall. And there was an audience for this, but by the time the flare had burned down, which was the duration of the piece, they had all vacated the room because, you know, the highway flare created a very toxic environment. Uh, so, so those two pieces from the, the 70s, I've, I, in a way, I've I've picked up that. Um, environmental uh, consciousness again with with climate change. So I've done a piece about Venice, uh, a video, observational video called Venice Underwater. I've done a shorter work called uh, New York Underwater. And uh, I just recently completed Miami Beach Elegy. And uh, I was attracted to Miami Beach because it's such an extreme situation. It's like the, the canary in the mine shaft in a way. Uh, has all these tall buildings, but it's just a little spit of a barrier island. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what are they going to do? They're already, the streets are already flooding, and so the mayor of Miami Beach has come up with this great idea of pumping the water back out into the bay, <laughs> into Biscayne Bay, right? And that, at the moment, that kind of works because the high tide only lasts two or three hours. And if you pump during that time, you can keep the, the level down in specific streets. But uh, I call it Miami Beach Elegy because it's a portrait of Miami Beach as it was in 2016. 
And, uh, you know, we don't know how many years Miami Beach has, but uh, Florida is, of course, a, a place where there, the governor is a climate change denier. And so there's a lot of um, a denialism in Miami where uh, there's also a kind of building boom and a lot of money coming in from different global places. So um, that is available on, on Vimeo. Mm -hmm. You can see that, that oh, works pretty easily. Yeah, oh, excellent. Yeah, and I know that's, as you know, I'm a science fiction geek, and right now everything is climate change dystopian, usually. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think one of my favorite quotes about that, I was at a Worldcon a few years ago, and someone said, uh, I love these dystopian novels because we're going to look at them as being the best case scenario with, compared to what we're dealing with. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, this has been fantastic. And just now a fire engine comes by. Good. Right. Um, so thank right. you so yeah. much. <laughs> okay. Well, send me, uh, yeah, let me know when things get posted. And uh, it's, a, it's a blog, so you don't have any, do you need any visuals? No, it's all... Mm -hmm. Audio, right? It's all okay. audio, but uh, but if you you could send a couple of links, I would be love. I usually do one photo per thing, and sometimes it's a file photo, sometimes it's a okay. photo minute. But anything would be very helpful. Okay, okay, oh, great. I will do that. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for for sparing okay. your time. Okay. Oh, great. All right. You're very welcome. Oh, great. Okay, Chris. All right. <laughs> bye, bye, Chip. <laughs> bye.